The Washington Post describe Anne Dessette Johnston's book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, as full of riveting candor. It was voted one of the 10 best books in 2013, and is this year celebrating 10 years. Yet, 10 years after its publication, a book full of eye-opening facts regarding alcohol, especially in relation to women, not much has changed. Anne continues to speak the facts, and this episode, she will discuss her story, her book drink, how things were, how the pandemic affected many Canadian families, and what needs to be done to change things in our culture so the hidden killer, alcohol, does not claim so many lives. I'm honored to welcome to Rachel Thexton Connects, Anne Dowsett Johnston. podcast, a wonderful guest who has a wealth of knowledge from various areas. She is a psychotherapist. She is a a journalist. She is an author. She has done a variety of work. She teaches a writing memoir course, one in which I took. I am thrilled to welcome today to Rachel Bexton Connects, Anne Dowsett Johnston. Thank you for being here today, Anne. It's a joy. Thank you, Rachel. So, Anne, we have, I've known you a little bit via our Zoom sessions when you did our wonderful writing course in which I I learned so much from you. So, but I I haven't spoken with you a a lot about yourself. And these questions that I want to talk to you about today are more related to, you know, you're writing the book and alcohol as it stands in society today some of your thoughts on it. So I want to start with your book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. It's a fantastic read for anyone who has not read it. It's unique in the sense that it has a combination of Anne's memoir mixed in. She sort of weaved in her skills as a journalist and presented, you know, these really quite startling facts about women and alcohol. And you just walk away with, wow, you you can't believe what you've read. And can you tell us a bit about the style of the book and how you presented it? And what did you really want readers to take away from drink? Well, I was looking at the closing gender gap on risky drinking, the fact that women were starting to catch up with men. Men have always outpaced women when it comes to drinking, but we saw something change in around 1996 where the alcohol industry started pinking the market, inventing those little um, pre-mixed drinks for teenage girls, Alka-Pops like Mike's Hard Lemonade, because all the, the Johnny Walker drinkers were dying out. And I was really interested in how all of a sudden there were drinks like mummy juice and, you know, French rabbit wine and berry flavored vodkas. And these were clearly drinks for women. I fell down the bunny hole myself of Uh, risky drinking when I was vice principal of McGill University in um, around 2006, 2007. And at first, when I went to rehab, I thought, 
it's my fault. I'm the only one with this terrible problem. And then as a journalist, I started looking around and realizing that I wasn't the only one. In fact, at the height of the baby boom, when I was born, I tend to be average. And if I'm doing it, it is often the fact that others are. So the book is a braided book. It's a braided book of my memoir of getting into trouble with alcohol and the closing gender gap of a whole whole generation. So I looked at the health risks for women, which are much higher than for men. I looked at other women's stories. I looked at the marketing piece, the one I just talked about. I looked at the availability piece, which are all the, the if you would, the petals that influence how we drink. I looked at our alcogenic culture and I came to one conclusion that alcohol had become the steroid for the modern woman's um, modern women, allowing her to do all she had to do in a complex world. In other words, be perfectly thin, perfect at work, perfect at home, perfect parent. And it was her perfect um, decompression tool as it was mine. Well, yes. Yeah, so it was, I would imagine much of your research that really led you to say, wow, someone needs to put this together and present it in a way that, and I have a story to tell as well, meaning you. Um, so it's, it's just such a, it's, it's an amazing read because it has that grip of the memoir with the grip of the facts of the way things are and continue to be in Canada today. The way you describe perfection is interesting to me. It's no secret that um, I've struggled with substance um, abuse and use in the past. Um, alcohol was not uh, my, my drug of choice, but I always wondered how perfection was achieved with, with the hangover from alcohol. And I, I, I know that's kind of a little bit off of question, but people wonder that, I think, and they ask a little bit. Sometimes they ask, how how are women able to... Um, you know, keep this level of drinking and keep this level of productivity with the hangover that many feel come from, from alcohol. What are your thoughts on that? I know it sounds like a silly question, but I, I hear it a lot. No, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think people acclimatize themselves to their drug of choice, um, be it, you know, binging and purging or be, be it cocaine or be it, um, uh, this drug and alcohol is a drug. We like to see it as as a food group, you know, paired with food. But um, no, um, it's a drug, and my hangovers got increasingly um, problematic. Um, but here's the truth: is that your body acclimates to um, alcohol. It's a progressive disease, and if you consider it a disease, I don't but I called it my Celtic blood disorder. And my Celtic blood disorder was something I grew very used to. So my tolerance went up. My ability to drink more went up. My ability to perform. I didn't miss work. I won awards at work. At McGill University, we overshot our, you know, we were supposed to raise X million that year and we raised more than we were supposed to. That's thanks to a wonderful team. But um, I wasn't let's put it this way. I wasn't the alcoholic my mother was. She was very much the 1960s Betty Ford combined um, benzos um, and 
alcohol during the day, stay in bed, stay at home mom. Um, I, in fact, didn't really pick up on the fact I had a problem because I thought I don't look like my mother. I, I, I was a high achiever. Mm-hmm. I was always a high achiever. It's so interesting you would say that. When I went to treatment uh, about seven years ago, I remember having a discussion with someone there and saying, how am I going to accomplish my work owning my business without substances? And it sounds like such a ridiculous question because people would think, well, how can you do your work with substances? But like you say, it was a, it was a kind of, a, you know, an energizer, um, uh, confidence booster, uh, energy maker, all of those things in my professional space until it wasn't, right? Until it, it was very much the opposite in every form, you know, and it, and it wasn't working any any longer. But I think that's kind of, I would think, a comparable. So that's, it's quite interesting in a, in a very unfortunate way. So the yes. pandemic, I want to switch over to this. I was searching this morning and, and I know that you, you do uh, a lot of guest writing and uh, through days in journalism. And the pandemic was a tough time for everyone. You know, a lot of isolation, people together, maybe that uh, were not uh, wanting to be together as much as they were, uh, maybe didn't have the best dynamics between one another. A lot of problems developed. I, I you know, have heard through nonprofits I work with, sadly, that uh, domestic abuse rates um, increased during that time. There were there are a lot of problems with children post-pandemic who had been in isolated homes during that time. And there was also, from what we're seeing now, increased alcoholism. And I spoke with a colleague at a nonprofit the other day who said he's seeing a lot of people coming to him uh, saying they developed alcohol um, dependencies during the pandemic. So what are your thoughts, Anne, on this? What ob- observations are you making um, and I saw a piece you wrote, should alcohol have been an essential service even during the pandemic? So can you give me your observations? Yes. I'm no prohibitionist, but I I think everything I said about the demands on women, for instance, and, and men matter as well, of course they do, but... <clears throat> Every, all the demands on women when, when children were not going to school, when there was homeschooling and so on and so forth. There was a, an epidemic of female drinking in the pandemic. And it, I'm not saying, you know, men didn't drink. They did. But women, women the numbers for women went way up. And um, all the stress, the, the need for a decompression tool became more so. And... You know, David Jernigan, the brilliant researcher, alcohol researcher who's at in Boston, um, said it was the epidemic of female drinking that got overlooked because of the pandemic. So, for instance, you started seeing young girls outnumbering young men in emergency rooms, um, those, you, you know, presentations related to alcohol. Really scary numbers. And then the scary numbers... Um, that came out at the end of the summer um, out of the state saying that the pace of women dying, um, especially 65 and over, had was outpacing men. In other words, men are still, more men are dying from alcohol, but the steep curve for women, the increase, the scale is much higher for women and women, especially over 65. So, I think the isolation of the pandemic was 
extraordinarily difficult. Um, we know that loneliness is the new smoking in when it comes to health. And I think people were extremely lonely. Um, and to connect the dots on having grown up in a family where I lost two parents to alcoholism, um, I'm, I'm very um, sensitive to what households must have become for so many children. Yeah. I was a very young girl when my mother started abusing alcohol and I'm the eldest of three children. And my father was a mining engineer who usually was in Australia or Africa, we being in Canada. And that meant that my mother was emotionally absent, often physically absent upstairs and um, curtains would be closed. It was no way to grow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it I I can only imagine, and you you kind of see this in the movie of those times, you know, the the Valium and the alcohol or whatever it may be in combination, and the children kind of left to fend for themselves in a way. Okay. Um, I'm sure that was a uh, sadly a maybe duplicated itself during the um, during the pandemic. I think you touched on something important there, and that is um, kind of hiding behind the the drug crisis and. You know, the drug toxicity um, is beyond crisis. I mean, it's killing six British Columbians daily. That's where I'm recording from today um, while taking absolutely nothing away from it because uh, I've said to you before, I'm a, I'm a very enthusiastic advocate for addressing that issue. I am very concerned um, and no less about, but I'm worried that alcohol has kind of been hiding in the background and no one's people aren't paying as much attention and therefore the problem might indeed be growing in mid-October of this year helpwithdrinking.ca it's developed by the Canadian Research Institute in Substance Misuse and BC Centre on Substance Use reported that more than 50% of Canadians aged 15 plus drink more than recommended and also high risk drinking often goes unrecognized and untreated as does alcohol use disorder which is defined as ongoing use and difficulty controlling drinking even when faced with consequences do you and feel that the legal socially acceptable and common ways that alcohol are incorporated into our culture are contributing to this problem complicating both the prevention and treatment of it and that the drug crisis as awful as it is 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 masking also a secondary problem which is alcohol well i would go a lot further if you look at the numbers of what alcohol cost canada in terms of you know um losses of all sorts um 19 plus billion um more than double what tobacco and op opioids are to get together so it is invisible it is the drug of canadians more than uh 79 of canadians 15 and over drink consume alcohol we are very enthusiastic that's a much higher percentage than in the u.s and so we're enthusiastic drinkers and the harms um, as a result of alcohol are, are large and pervasive in our culture. And we ignore it. We ignore it because basically most people say, I pay my taxes, I raise good kids, I do my job, what I do on a 
Friday night is my business. And if it's alcohol, as I said, we don't see it as a drug. It isn't fentanyl. It isn't, it, it, it isn't cocaine. And therefore, I'm just fine. When the low-risk drinking guidelines came out in January, saying that no amount of alcohol is healthy, um, the, I did about between 70 and 100 interviews within two weeks across the country. And, you know, people would say to me, journalists would say to me, what's the reaction going to be? And I'd say, Canadian public's going to be outraged. And they were. They were totally outraged. And this the suggestion, one to three measured drinks a week, you know, where before it had been 10 for a woman, a woman and 15 for a man, well, people were just appalled. It, it's I'm going to go to a question I had planned for later, but it connects perfectly with this, unfortunately, is that alcohol is so deeply entrenched in our culture. Uh, in 2023, the CBC News piece um, quoted Dr. Tim Nimey, the director of Canadian Institute of Substance Use Research, University of Victoria. And he said, in part, alcohol is the favorite substance of many policymakers and indeed for a lot of us. It has sort of an iconic cultural status. Politicians, they don't want to do much about it. What is your reaction to this statement? These are policymakers who may indeed be have problems with alcohol themselves. Well, I think there's a there's a really um, clear story, and it goes like this: that the alcohol industry, uh, or the alcohol, yeah, the alcohol industry gives across party lines. It gives generously, and um, it has a lot of influence in the U.S. On Capitol Hill, there are two lobbyists, alcohol lobbyists, for every representative. Think about it. So. Um, no one wants to touch our favorite drug. Why would they? Why would they? It It is um, really brave of Canada to have come out with the low risk drinking guidelines. Um, it's really amazing. The alcohol industry was, they've also recommended labeling and standard drink, uh, um, standard drink labeling and even warning labels and on alcohol bottles and the industry is seeing red. I've got a piece coming out later this week in the Globe on this subject, and it's it's a fascinating one. Wow, it it's I you know I always remember being so frustrated in my use of prescription medications. There was such a, a shame and stigma that went along with that, and I was judged so heavily. Um, some in the corporate world, in which you know much of my life revolved around at the time. And I was just, to be honest, I was bitter that people who were drinking were not being judged in that way. And I saw my colleagues in the corporate space drinking very heavily. Um, and that was okay. That was fine. It's almost like as long as it's the accepted drug, that's all right. But if it's the drug that's illegal or that's, you know, not accepted, that's not okay. And so I lived under this cloud of shame and, and embarrassment for quite some time after um, going out with my story as a professional um, who was having problems with substances. Um, so what you say is exactly right, is that alcohol is just, you know, it's the 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 accepted drug and there's many that are helping it, helping to make it be so. Um, depression. I'd like to turn to that for a second. You are also a, a psychotherapist. I don't know how you have time to wear all of these hats and wow. Um, a psychotherapist, depression, 
can often be a reason that one looks for alcohol or other substances for comfort or for, you know, numbing of emotions. Um, in your book, Drink, you describe a moment, uh, and I, I always remember it, when you say in your book, your partner at the time says to you, when you drink, that piano on your back seems to disappear. Right. But, but that was very powerful. Um, yeah. Do you want to speak to that statement? I don't think I need to go further than that. No, I, I ended up from a very young age, probably partly in um, due to the household I was I grew up in, which was very dysregulated, um, and partly because of my genes, I think, um, suffering from depression from a very early age. And um, it really intensified when I was in my early 50s and perimenopausal, and I had determined that I was never going to take a pill because of my mother's use of Valium. And so I wouldn't take antidepressants. And I was really chronically depressed. I was also drinking um, a depressant, which is alcohol. Um, it took me some time to be persuaded by friends to get help um, and to actually take an antidepressant. But um by that point, my drinking had already progressed and I had to remove the alcohol to see how bad my depression was without the alcohol involved in my life. So it was a bit of a, um, there was a lot of unpacking to be done there. And indeed, um, depression has been a real a piano on my back, to use Jake's words. And um and I've had to wrestle, as my mother did, you know, I now see so clearly that we say, you know, we forget to say what's wrong. We say what's wrong with that woman, and we should be saying what happened to that woman. And what happened to me was a very violent childhood. What happened to my mother was, I think, a very, very problematic issue with mood disorders that were not treated. And we have to have compassion. I, I love that statement. I will always remember it. It's one of Dr. Gaber Mate's that I'll remember. He says, don't say why the drugs, say why the pain. And you right. just said, um, what, can you repeat it? What happened to that woman instead of saying, what is instead wrong with the woman? What's wrong with that woman saying what happened yes. to that woman? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful and, 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 uh, true. Something that, uh, I think we should give some thought to. What are your thoughts on these drugs? Um, and there's not uh, a lot of discussion about them, but there has been some recent news around SSRI antidepressants and how they may be a dangerous mix with alcohol further in increasing cravings. And when I say, what are your thoughts on these drugs? I mean, Vivitrol and others that are meant to stop um, drinking by kind of taking away that reward to the brain that alcohol provides. So um, I guess it's a two-pronged question. Is this SSRI finding that it may actually be harmful to those who are drinking? And second of all, you know, these drugs that are meant to kind of help uh, alcoholics or um, however we want to describe it, those who are having challenges with alcohol to stop drinking. Well, I think we live in interesting times. I think the information on SSRIs is really scary. Mm -hmm. um, we live in a culture that, that, as we know, has many, many, many people on um, mood disorder medication. And so I will say anecdotally that 
I am not surprised. I, when first prescribed drugs for my depression, um, saw a titanic um, spike in my um, craving for alcohol. And I always knew there was a connection. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. It makes me really sad, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, Anti-craving drugs, I can't speak to. I grew up in a household where my mother was on um, any number of drugs and I just, I just can't really speak to it. I haven't gone that route and I think it would be wrong if I had an opinion. Yeah, the SSRI space is really concerning me. I spent about, oh, good goodness, maybe two decades of my life trying different SSRIs and none of them ever worked for me. And I thought, what is wrong with me? My, my depression must be so extreme that these none of these drugs will help me. And now there's even been studies coming out saying that, you know, they're equal to a placebo and you know, you know, pretty, I'm sorry that I can't reference the medical journals here today. I didn't note them, but, um, and what you've just mentioned about um, antidepressants, you know, causing spikes in cravings for those who are drinking. So, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, um, it can be a very scary uh, industry at times. And that concerns me greatly when there are so many people who are um, feeling depression, having challenges with it. Exactly. So through through your book, Drink, you you have a chapter and you, you just have such a beautiful way of describing alcohol and you actually title the chapter Romancing the Glass. So that was indeed the, the intention. Um, you know, I've heard people describe the ice cubes kind of dancing in a glass or um, favorite sound being kind of a cork, you know, popping off with the sparks of, you know, a champagne bottle or whatever it may be to make this, you know, illusion of beauty behind behind a drink. And there are often these kind of beautiful visions and, and, and fancy visions associated with drinking um, that are intensified by the marketing, which you've described very well. And of course, our cultural culture accepting it and, and it being very much a part of it. Uh, how does how does one overcome this bombardment of images um, it's based on an illusion. I mean, I have a, a family member who's who's a young family member who is trying to get out of the grips of alcohol as we speak. And I am terrified because in society, I don't know how this person is going to, you know, lead a life and and not have this thrown in their face every second, kind of seeing it and being pressured with it. And the waitress telling you the specials when you just want a sandwich, you know, it's uh tell me your thoughts on this, on this, Anne, if you don't mind. It's, it is, as I said, whether you call it alcogenic or alcocentric culture, where this is how we relax, reward, celebrate. We all know that. I think it, it takes enormous fortitude to live in this culture. I mean, it has never been easier to find a non-alcoholic alternative. But when you're first trying to give up alcohol in this culture, it is, I was so sensitized that I found myself going into restaurants. And for instance, if there was a wall of wine, I had to sit on the other side of the table so I wasn't viewing it. Um, the smell of red wine as, it being, as it's being passed down a Thanksgiving or Christmas table from person to person, I found that impossible. Mm -hmm. So I think it takes enormous fortitude to live in this culture where we get surround sound messaging. I feel very strongly about um, always having a drink in my hand. I give it the advice that 
you know, go into a party with that drink in your hand and non-alcoholic drink in your hand and become an interviewer. Ask the other person. So a person comes up to you and, and says, surely one won't hurt you. You say, no, I have a drink. And how are you doing? And tell me about your family. Everybody loves that question. Or tell me about your job. And there are ways to navigate, but there's also ways to just stay out of the party. Say, I'm not going and to make different choices. So new sobriety is not for the faint of heart in our culture. It's very, very difficult. Your first Christmas, your first New Year's, your first birthday, your first wake, uh, your first wedding, all of these things are extraordinarily difficult. And much of my practice is made up of women trying to recreate a new relationship with uh, their lives without alcohol or moderating, etc. Uh, and you describe it so well. I can see why the book was so amazing because even when you're talking about it, it's like as if it happened to you yesterday. You know, just just the the freshness and the detail behind. You know, I can I can just picture it. Uh, you know, I'm in the room. I'm in the room with you. And and at this time, as you're describing these these temptations and these. And this is the flip side, right? Where I said I was very frustrated because I was stigmatized and all of these. Well, this is the flip side. I, you know, I don't have to see, you know, um, prescription medication around me and everyone using it and asking me why I'm not having it at a at a public event or a family event. So, you know, there's a flip side to to challenges with every um, dependency that that we um, that we develop with substances. So that's something that it, that I must be in incredibly empathetic about. Um, but thank you for for how you describe things. It's just so real. Uh, and that leads me to this is that uh, uh, two or three years ago, I think it was three years ago, I took your writing class. It's called Writing Your Recovery. Um, and it's done remotely. And we had people from across Canada, and I think across the around the world who were taking the course at the time. Um, and and I, I, I loved it because I was able to really, um, well, just learn from you, which was a treat. And I will, I'm just curious as to why you chose writing your recovery versus simply some type of a memoir format writing class or a creative writing class. You think people are keen to write about their recovery and their experiences of substances? Um, I think that's such a beautiful question. The, the reason I called it writing your recovery um, was because I think, you know, as she recovers says, we're all in recovery from something. So I have people recovering from um, grief, often grief, often injury, often um, something's happened to a loved one. Often um, it can be diet problem, eating disorder. It can, it often is alcohol. It often is drugs, but as well, it's many other things. And so as we enter into our third year with writing your recovery, we have, as you said, students from all over the world, women, and it has been extraordinarily rewarding. It's also a way for me to keep the journalist in me alive as I become a psychotherapist to have writing and creative writing be part of my life, which has been a great joy. Yes. And I found, I, I think, you know, I found during the course that, that the women that were sharing their writing, um, they, 
they all were just writing such equally beautiful pieces. And, and maybe that's because it hits this experience, hits such a deep part of us that we're just maybe when we really, really pull it out and are able to put it down on paper, um, it, it's quite moving um, in, a, in a sad and devastating and beautiful way um, at the same time. Um, what always sticks with me about the course is uh, advice that you provided uh, in bringing the reader to the experience, um, you know, with the senses. So the sounds, the smells and other senses uh, versus, you know, describing it in facts, because, you know, this really, as you, you know, you have done in this interview, uh, takes you to the place and uh, versus, you know, um, you know, boring description of, of, of how it happened. Are there any other pieces of advice or key tips um, that you would give to people? Maybe one or two top tips to telling one's story. Because I know, you know, there are people who, who are so keen to do this and are just don't know where to start. And what would you say are your number one or two tips to, you know, telling your story in, a, in via the pen and paper? Well, I think the best thing I could do is give you a prompt. Um, you know, people feel overwhelmed when they say, I'd like to sit down and write a book. Where do I begin? How do I look at my story? Where, you know, what can I possibly do? And so I always say, write about something you're on the edge of. Are you on the edge of making a change in your life? Are you on the edge of a new choice? Are you on the edge of despair? Are you on the edge of, but as you know, from taking the course, I say, start with a quilt square, start, start with one image, one moment, one dinner you remember from your childhood or romantic dinner, or maybe a sad dinner and make a quilt square. See if you can get 750 words down, a thousand words about an experience. Because really drink is a, a quilted book. I call it a braided book because it's, you know, both memoir and reportage, but it's also a quilted book, which is scene after scene, some from my former journals. And I think, you know, we help writers in my course by getting them to take apart what they want to do and not make it so daunting. Mm -hmm. I'm inspired. I think after we get off our interview, I'm going to do a bit of writing. I haven't oh, for good, Rachel. a few days. So there you go. Um, I want to read a short excerpt from your book. It stuck with me. Um, and then here you're speaking of your mother, um, who you have described as having a problem with alcohol, challenges, challenges with it throughout your childhood. And um, here you say, quote, together we are survivors. We both know this. The pact is silent and profound. We have been through the wars together. So you found a form of forgiveness for your mother is my first question. Uh, and as a psychotherapist, how would you advise those to cope who are in a home to navigate one who is living in a home with these family dynamics? What a beautiful question. Um, yes, my mother and I were able in her last years to um, find some peace. She never gave up drinking, but she became more moderate in, in her drinking. I did give up drinking and 
we in her journey from being an an elderly widow to then a woman with some dementia um i was with her a lot and we became friends and we both understood that we had a history of of alcohol um problems and we shared that and we traveled together i had a man at a speech I gave last week, say, I never could forgive my father. How did you learn to give you, forgive your mother? I forgave her because I actually experienced the same hell and I had compassion for her. Um, that's a hard thing to prescribe for another family person, but I was blessed with the um, experience that we got to sit side by side playing Scrabble both well and poorly as she as she faded into dementia mm. um, and I was in her hospital bed when she died um, lying beside her and we had a peaceful end it's it's wonderful to hear and beautiful to hear I'm so glad that I was able to be um, moments for you so in your um experience and I, I spoke with the BC's chief coroner and we talked about a little bit about you know the top causes of death in British Columbia and of course drug toxicity is up there in the top two or three I believe I think it's number two um, a lot in the top 10 are ones that could be attributed to alcohol um, cancers liver diseases and others um so as you said, I think it's, it is killing many more Canadians than any of us are aware. In your opinion, based on your experiences and your expertise, what do you feel is Canada's best next step in addressing the issue of alcohol use and the, the absolute havoc that it's causing um, on our country? Well, I would I would take all the advice that came from um, the very wise people that oversaw saw the lowest drinking guidelines. I would um, take a look at how we market alcohol. I would be much stricter. I would take a look at the availability of alcohol in grocery stores and corner stores, and I would be much tougher. I would um, because we know these are the levers: availability, pricing, and marketing those are the levers you press on to change the um, way people consume alcohol. We are home to some of the best and the brightest alcohol researchers in the world. You mentioned Dr. Tim Nimey, there's Dr. Tim Stockwell, there's Jürgen Rehm, there's um, a host of other names. And we know what to do. We know what to do. We know that probably labeling is a good idea. We know that even warning labels would be a good idea. We've come out with the low-risk drinking guidelines. We're leaders in the world with that. We need to follow through. We need to follow through. Follow through. Too many families, and this is a family disease, are suffering from the use of alcohol. And we have to put a stop to this. And, you know, as I will say, and, and you know, I do think the numbers, when you look at the 19 billion plus that alcohol costs Canada and know that that is a bigger number than tobacco and opioids together, I am in no way dismissing the opioid problem, but I am saying alcohol is invisible. We don't even pay attention. As I said, we don't even see it as a drug. Mm-hmm. Are there any nonprofits, Anne, that you'd like to highlight 
I don't know if they're related to to research or or you know advocacy around this issue or if there are other ones that you'd like to highlight today. I always ask my guests that at uh, at the end of our discussion. Well, I think what I would like to say, which I didn't I didn't just say, and I and I should have said, is that I was part of a life and recovery survey that was so brave done by the CCSA a few years ago. And what we found is that people can and do recover. They can and do recover, but the problem is access to treatment, access to knowing where to go in your community, what's affordable, what's available is the real problem. And and the and so I'm not answering your question directly as much as just saying, we are under-resourced as a country for the problems that we have, and we need to pay better attention to um, those um, initiatives in this country um, that want to make a difference. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. I think this uh, discussion is incredibly important. Uh, I'm going to try to fast track it so we can get it out there and 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 spread it around because I think that as much as people do not, some people do not want to have the discussion. Um, I am going to force them to and <laughs> force them to listen to the to the facts. So, um, you know, uh, thank you so much, Anne, for your expertise and for being here today and taking the time from your busy schedule to educate and um, enlighten us with all of um, the information that you have and, and expertise. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Rachel. It was a joy. Be kind and connect with authenticity. You are listening to Rachel Thexton Connects.